0: and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, Please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott.
1: All right, let's get after it. But before we do, we need to pray. Our four prayer points. One, pray that God speaks to you individually. God knows where you're at. Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to open up your heart. In your mind to hear from him and receive what he has for you this morning pray that also for the person next to you in front of you or behind you um also pray for those who maybe don't know the lord that they would be drawn into his kingdom into his presence this morning and then lastly i would say pray for me pray that god would speak to me and through me that it would truly be his word that you guys hear not mine my words just the filler let's hear and understand his word what his word says and how it applies to our lives amen Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the freedom we have to be here today to worship you, to fellowship with other believers, and to get into your word. Um, God, we pray that you do indeed do that, that you speak to us individually. You speak to us corporately as a church. Father, that you would speak to those who don't know you, that you would draw them into a relationship with you. Uh, And Lord, I do pray that you would speak to me and through me. God, bring direction and correction to my life. Lord, I thank you for the study time this week in this message and what you did speak to me personally. And Lord, this morning, more than anything, I want your word to be heard. So that's where we stand, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses seventeen or 12 through 17, and the title is simply, A Church of Compromise, as we continue looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Churches that are in operation at the time that John is writing the book. Um, These letters were literally written to them specifically, but there is so much depth to them. There is something for us today as Christians. Uh, And we'll probably quote this, if we don't quote it every Sunday, we'll quote it often, and it's Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, the time is near how many of you feel like the time is definitely near right it's it's getting closer and it's getting real uh, in all of our eyes Uh, and it's also another sunday reminder that we don't just read or hear god's word and move on with life that we are to pay attention to it we're to respond to it we're to apply it to our lives That's something we should be doing on a daily basis. Don't just wait for Sunday morning to do that as you're in God's Word throughout the week. Read it. Listen to it. Heed what it says. Do what it says. Our focus as we go through this study should be on what the message God is giving to us individually and corporately through these churches. It's also important for us to remember, and especially as a Calvary Chapel, we read the whole Bible. We take the whole counsel of God's Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we hold on to those truths that are revealed in it as the Word of God. The amount of the Old Testament references that are in the book brings strength to what we read and to the application that points always to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the whole Bible points to Jesus. There's not one piece of it that doesn't. Last week, we saw in our study the poverty at a level that we in this room cannot relate to. Uh, these Christians lost their jobs. They had their possessions stolen, all because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that they wouldn't submit to, a, to burning a pinch of incense and saying, Caesar is Lord. They held that title for Jesus alone. Jesus exhorted them for their faith and for their works, for holding steady, even though they were physically poor, they were spiritually rich. They understood the assignment. For us, I would say, do we understand the assignment that we have as Christians, as followers of Christ? We have an assignment. They understood that heaven was the goal. That was the gain that they would get. Being poor and wealthy here on earth is non-sequential as far as our salvation. really doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Really, it's about your heart intent. What is it that, that your heart is doing? If you're poor, are you praising God and honoring him? If you're rich, are you praising God and honoring him? Or is your wealth or lack thereof distracting you and causing you to walk away from your faith? The bad part of wealth is when, when you do not control it, but it controls you. So we asked the question last week, are your possessions owned by you, or do they own you? Do they dictate what your faith will or will not be? Today we see a church that's doing well, for the most part. It has compromising members within it, and Jesus says that that compromise has to go. So let's read our message to Pergamum, Revelation two seventeen or 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some, or the way, holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. What is the character of this city? Who who is uh, Pergamum? Uh, What is it that's about them that makes them so special? Pergamos is the political center of the capital of Asia Minor. At the time John wrote this letter, Pergamum had been the political capital for for 300 years, so there's some history there. They are solid in what they do and what they believe and how they act and react. The center of culture and education. Even having one of the largest libraries in the Roman Empire with over 200,000 books or 200,000 volumes written. All of the cities that we have visited thus far uh, in our studies have been very religious This city is no exception. Temples are are built in it to both Greek and Roman gods, Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, Zeus, just to name a few. But then there are also three temples built solely for emperor worship. You see, about 50 years before Smyrna built a temple to Tiberius, Pergamum built a temple to Caesar Augustus but there's something fascinating about this city that I would say 99.9% of you have seen or or heard of at one time or another and and not really recognize that that's where that symbol came from. You see, this city was best known for the worship of a deity known as Asclepius. You all recognize that name, right? No, you don't. He was represented by a serpent, Asclepius. He was the god of healing and the god of knowledge. There's a medical school in the temple in Pergamum. Because of this famous temple in Rome, the God of healing, the, the sick and diseased people from all over the, the Roman Empire would come to that temple, to that city, to be healed. Barclay says, Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were tame Snakes. In night, at the nighttime, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided away on the ground where he laid. And the touch of that snake was held to be the touch of God himself. And the touch was held to bring health and healing. How many of you want to come lay in this dark sanctuary and let the snakes kind of do their thing? Nobody. Asclepios. Doctors and paramedics and medical staff, uh, they all use the symbol of Asclepius today. It's that staff with the snake wrapped around it. You've all seen it. It's on most of the ambulances when they go by. That's that same symbol. That's where it comes from. Jesus then gives his description for this church, his description. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He says this, See, in Revelation 1.16, John observed of, of Jesus out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and now Jesus showed this two-edged sword to the Christians in Pergamum. The description in Revelation 1.16 helps us associate it with the mouth of Jesus. Jesus will confront this church with his word, and they will feel the sharp edges. It's yet another reminder for us of a beautiful passage in Hebrews that we read. Hebrews four twelve 12-13, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom with we have to do. How many of you have been studying God's Word or you hear somebody teaching and and they give a scripture and you just feel like, it just struck to the core, right? That's what God's Word does. It penetrates the heart and the mind. It divides the flesh. Here in our text, Jesus would use this sharp two-edged sword to make some separation among the Christians in Pergamos. The Bible is alive both because the Lord brought it into existence and because his Holy Spirit brings its message to life in our hearts. There's been times where I've been studying and I've read the same verse. I've probably read it a million times. And I'll be in my study and I'm reading and I open up the scriptures and all of a sudden it's that very same verse again and all of a sudden it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, "No, right there, that one, do you hear what I'm saying? That's because God's word is alive. It's alive and it's powerful. It has the power to transform our lives, to keep us steadfastly anchored in him when the storms of life strike. There is no other book in history that has the inspiration, the truth, or the power of God's word. So the question is for you this morning, are you allowing God's word to do its work in you and in your life? Remember, we are to listen to God's word, and in that, we're to take heed, right? We're to apply it. We're to hear and respond to what God is saying. We're to obey. The exhortation is that we are to let the word of God do its work. Why would you open your Bible and read it if you didn't want to have God intervene and act within your life? right? We open it, we read it, we apply it, we act on it. Jesus knows Pergamus. Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus has said this to each church, and it's true of each one of us. He knows our works, even if there isn't much to know. So the question comes up again. If Jesus was to walk into your house this afternoon, after you're done here at church, or even this evening, if he was to walk into your house and have a conversation with you, would he be pleased with your works, with your faith, with what you have done, with what he's given you? Then he says, I know you dwell where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How would you like that address? You see, in many ways, Pergamus was a stronghold of satanic power. Several differing opinions as to why. One, it's a center of pagan worship, Asclepios, or as they called it, Asclepios Soter, meaning healing savior. That was the god that they worshipped there. Or some believe it was a large temple and throne built and dedicated to the worship of the Roman god Zeus. Others yet think it's because it was a center of Babylonian priesthood and still others simply because it was the political center that demanded worship of the Roman emperors. Regardless, they lived in a very difficult city, yet these Christians held fast to their faith in Jesus Christ. Question for you this morning then, what do you have faith in? Where is your faith? Is your faith in your job, in that paycheck? Is your faith in your car, the transportation? You have faith in the seat that you're sitting in right now. You you had faith that when you pushed it down and you sat down, it was going to hold you, right? You have faith in your football team with a new coach and a $240 million quarterback. How's that working out? What is your faith in? What is it that you're holding on to? Do you have faith in God? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus praised the Christians of Pergamos because they did not deny his faith. It's always important to make sure that the faith that we hold on to is the faith that belongs in Jesus. Everything else is going to fail. Everything else is going to fall apart or fall aside. Where is your faith? The days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But one specific man among the Christians of Pergamus received a precious title of faithful martyr. It's the same title held by Jesus in Revelation 1.5. Antipas was a man who followed Jesus. He was a man who was like Jesus. Antipas, one of the great, almost anonymous heroes of the Bible. History tells us nothing about him. All we have about him is right here in Scripture. Poole points out the importance of Antipas. It is no ecclesiastical history makes mention of this martyr Antipas, which argues him to have been a person but of obscure note in the world. But Christ sees and takes notice of those little ones who belong to him, even though the world overlooks them. Christ sees you. He sees your faith. He sees where you're at in life. You don't have to have some big title or do some great thing. He sees you and understands you and where you're at. He sees your faith. How would you like the reference to your life to be that of living where Satan's throne was? Like that's your address. Hey, you go go to Mike's house. Yeah, it's just right next door to Satan's throne. It's right, you know, right there. You know where Satan's throne is? Yet even though that was what was said, he stood against the attacks of the evil that was around him. He fulfilled the meaning of his name because Antipas means against all. Now the word martyr is also foreign to us in Western civilization. Not many of us really will experience that, that harsh of a punishment. Martyr is the ancient Greek word martyrs. Barclay said, Martis is the most interesting and suggestive word. In classical Greek, Martis never means martyr in our sense of the term. It always means a witness. A Martis was one who said, this is true and I know it. It's not until the New Testament times that Martis even means martyr. Antipas, a faithful witness. Church tradition says that Antipas was a a physician suspected of secretly propagating Christianity. So the those the members of the medical guild, they accused Antipas of disloyalty to Caesar. And upon being condemned to death, he was placed inside of a, a large copper bowl and it was heated over a fire until it was red hot. That's how he was martyred. Antipas gave his life as a witness for Christ. Jesus saw him, and even though the world may overlook you and I, may overlook our faith, Jesus sees us, and that's what counts. He sees you. Now Jesus shifts gears in what he has against Pergamum, verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans." The Christians and Pergamos were rightly praised for holding fast to the name of Jesus, for keeping the faith, and at the same time, their difficult environment did not excuse the few things that Jesus had against them. It's here in scriptures like this that, that we get in trouble within our current culture and our society. We push back against society's call to make evil good and to make good evil. You all remember Balaam, right? Or maybe you remember his talking donkey at some point in reading scripture. Balaam was a wicked prophet in the Bible. He's noteworthy because although he was a wicked prophet, he was not a false prophet. That is that Balaam did hear from God. God did give him some true prophecies to speak. However, Balaam's heart was not right with God. And eventually he showed his true colors by betraying Israel and leading them astray. Balaam's name and story became infamous as he was referred to several times in, in the New Testament. Peter compares the false teachers to Balaam who loved the wages of wickedness in 2 Peter 2.15. Jude echoes the same senten- senten- sentiment associating Balaam with the selling of one soul for fin- financial gain in Jude 1.1. 1 1. Finally, Jesus speaks of Balaam here in our text. Satan's tactics have not changed. If he cannot curse God's people directly, then he'll try the backdoor approach. Idolatry and sexual immorality are his go-to. Those are the temptations he goes at the most. Putting other things in front of God, putting the flesh in front of God. This speaks of compromise in our lives. We're going to come back to that. Balaam was a prototype of all corrupt teachers. According to Numbers 22 through 24 and Numbers 31, Balaam combined the sins of immorality and idolatry to please Balak, the king of Moab, because he could not curse Israel directly. When Balaam counseled Balak, he taught Balak to put a a stumbling block before the children of Israel. The stumbling block was connected with idolatry, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. If the church in Pergamus had those who had held on to this doctrine of Balaam, it showed that they had tendencies towards both idolatry and immorality. Tendencies because they allowed it to happen. This is a description of our society, maybe even a description of, of some of the churches today within our country and within our city. Sexual immorality marked the whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire. It was simply taken for granted. The person who lived by biblical standards of purity, they were considered strange. They were considered odd. To paraphrase the Roman statesman Cicero, it was cited this way in Barclay, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed the love of many women, he is extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that what is not allowed was allowed? To keep from sexual immorality in that culture, you really had to swim Against the current. Sounds just like our world today, doesn't it? Not much has changed. We're still swimming against the current. Because we hold on to God's word and our relationship with him. We hold our relationship with God in high regard. We should be striving for and pushing back against that current. Matthew 7:13 and 14 says enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. This is even more applicable today. We are walking up this path that gets narrower and narrower as we surrender our lives to the Lord, as we're seeking God on a daily basis, as we're in his word, we're walking up that path and it's getting narrower. And at the same time we're walking up that path, we're bumping elbows with people who are walking the opposite direction. We're headed towards eternity. We're headed towards heaven. They are headed towards the opposite direction, which means they're headed for eternity in hell. We're bumping elbows with those very same people. It's in that that those people who are walking that direction to that wider path, that they seek messages that justify their actions. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. You see, a time is coming, and I would argue that that time is now, Where people are going to outright reject the truth of God's word. They're going to pick and choose what they believe based on their desires, based on their preferences. They will follow false doctrine and ungodly teachers who preach what they want to hear. I could take you on a little tour of our city of Lakewood and show you churches that I know for a fact that have made that choice. This is not one of those churches. Going to hold true to God's word. As they did in Paul and John's time, they will eventually persecute believers. However, we must remain steadfast in our faith, knowing that we do not answer to them. Who do we answer to? God. We answer to Jesus. We don't have to worry about the world, we don't have to worry about anything else other than pleasing Him. We're accountable to Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. So, my question for you this morning is Are you swimming or walking against the flow of society? Or are you going with the flow? Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. What are you seeking to hear? And when you hear it, are you applying it to your life? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to bring change, guidance, and direction for everything, every day? Not just for the big decisions we make in life, for everyday things. Or are you looking for words that please the flesh? Are you looking for something that will justify what you want to do? We have to stay true to God's word. In verse 15, it says, So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Revelation 2 6 says that Jesus uh, praised the Christians in Ephesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans also had their doctrine, and some among the Christians in Pergamos held to their doctrine. What is this doctrine? The title Nicolaitans has the idea of a proud authority, a a hierarchical uh, separatism. Uh, They were holier than thou, we would say today. The name Nicolos literally means to conquer the people. Well, that sounds good for a religious leader, right? We're going to conquer the people. According to ancient commentators, the Nicolaitans also approved of the immorality that was happening. They didn't care. They did what they wanted to do and allowed everyone else to do the same, and yet they held to a holy arrogance that they had all the answers. You also have some who. uh, The rebuke was not only against those who held the doctrines of Balaam and the doctrines of, of Nicolaitans. The rebuke was also against those who allowed them to continue in the church. That's why really the importance of us making sure that we have godly elders in place within our church that are helping watch the doctrine and watch what's going on within this body. There's accountability. So a question I have for you this morning. Are you allowing unchecked sin in your life or unchecked compromise in your life or in the lives of believers around you without asserting your faith and scripture in the situation? Like We take everything to God's word. There should be accountability. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? You want to hold me accountable? Anybody? You should. Somebody should want to hold me accountable. <laughs> I want to hold you accountable. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we need to know each other. We need to know what's going on in life. There's accountability, and that accountability brings strength and keeps us on point with doctrine. The Christians of Pergamos were like the Christians of Corinth, as Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 9. They were too tolerant and accepting of false doctrines and immoral living, and Jesus had to rebuke them. And it's interesting here that Satan couldn't accomplish much by persecution. They held steady. They held firm in their faith. They were unmovable like Polycarp and Antipas. So Satan, the deceiver, tried to accomplish his goals by using deception. The strategy was was first violence, and short of that, then it's an alliance with evil. The reality is that a, a difficult environment never justifies compromise. A difficult situation in our life does not justify compromise well, this is going on right now, so you know it's okay. No. It doesn't justify it. It's easy for a church in such difficulty to justify compromise in the name of, well, we need all the help we can get and we just want to bring everybody in. And But no church needs that kind of help. No individual Christian needs that kind of help. Any type of compromise will indeed lead to destruction and even death. Compromise will destroy everything we can't compromise it doesn't mean that we walk around though and start thumping people on the head with judgment and go get my big nasb study bible and start whacking people but it does mean that we are a spirit-filled believer who is an ambassador of christ the importance of us having fellowship within the body we get to know who each other are and, and where our strengths and weaknesses are and we get to sharpen each other and encourage each other and there's time where there's, there's joy and there's happiness and encouragement and there's time where there's discipline and it's hard and there's tears and we grind through it but that's how we grow together. That's how we encourage each other as the body of Christ to grow stronger. We're to shine the light of God's word into every situation and this is all around us every day. Individually, there's temptation and there's compromise on a daily basis in all of us. We all have opportunities to compromise. We all have opportunities to give into temptation. So it starts with us individually. So I would ask you, what areas are you compromising in right now? And are you justifying that compromise? Because of your personal compromise then, are you allowing the compromise in others because you don't want to be called out on your compromise. God puts people in front of you that you have influence over. What are you doing with that influence? God's speaking to me through this message as much as anybody. Like my prayer all the time is, God, as we get into the Word, is there a compromise in my life? Where do I need to take care of that? Where do I need to get rid of it? What do I need to do to make it right? What do I need to do to be in right standing before you? It's back to Psalms 139. God knows everything about you and he still loves you anyways. And at the end of Psalms 139, it says, is there any unrighteousness in me? Help me to see it. Help me to make it right. It's heavy, isn't it? You guys okay? I'm okay. (laughs) It's heavy though. We are responsible for what God tells us. Are we going to be obedient or not? If we don't take care of sin, eventually that sin is going to consume us. It's going to consume our faith. It's going to take away our hope. It's going to bring fear and frustration. That's why Jesus is so stern with Pergamum and he gives him firm instructions in verse 16. Therefore repent, or I'm coming to you quickly and I'm going to make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. The word repentance in the Bible literally means an act of changing one's mind. It's the true biblical word re- Uh, repentance goes beyond remorse and regret. Like when people say, oh, I'm sorry, what they're really saying is, I'm sorry I got caught, versus will you forgive me, I repent. It involves more than just merely turning away from the sin. Uh, Erdman's Bible Dictionary says, in its fullest sense, it is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. Repenting is turning away from what it is you were doing, turning fully surrendered to Christ and walking forward. That's repentance. The simple word repent stands out. Five of the seven churches are commanded to repent. Repent is a command that applies to Christians, not only those who first come to Jesus, but as a Christian, you and I should repent on a daily basis. Sometimes some of us in this room need to repent on an hourly basis. Right? We all have those days. We go before the Lord, we ask for forgiveness, we turn from what it is we're doing or what it is we're struggling from. So the question is, when is the last time that you have truly repented before the Lord, been repentant, or are you treating God like a a Catholic priest maybe? Father, forgive me for I have sinned. What do I need to do now? No. God, I repent. Forgive me. I'm turning from it, and I need your help. Repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Unless they do repent, the Christians of Pergamos would face Jesus, who has a two-edged sword. Judgment, guys, is going to begin in the house of God. It's among us, individually as Christians. 1 Peter four seventeen. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? When Jesus came against the Christians of Pergamos, he will do so by confronting him with his word. So do you have compromise that needs to be dealt with? See the reoccurring theme here. We're going to close talking about compromise in a little bit. The general exhortation, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. How many of you have ears? More of you this service have years than the first service. <laughs> the danger of false teaching and immoral conduct still faces the church today. So does the danger of allowing false teaching and immorality as it was a problem with the Christians and Pergamos. This is the part that we take a hold of today to apply what the word is saying. The promise of reward for obedience. The last part of verse 17. Pause for a second. you hear that little song, be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? For the Father up above is looking down in love. It still sounds so simple, doesn't it? But there's so much truth in that. What is it that you're hearing? Do you have ears? Are you listening to what it is that God is saying? All right, the last part of verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So the one who overcomes this spirit of accommodation to false teaching and living uh, will receive hidden manna. It's God's perfect provision. True bread from heaven. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jack had sent me some scriptures. um, And then a simple statement at the end, and, and it really has stuck with me. He said, God provided his people in the wilderness enough manna for each day. God will give you what you need. God will give you what you need. The only reason I'm here today is because God has given me just enough for today. Like we always want a little more, don't we? Okay, I have enough for today, but could you give me a little bit of tomorrow's too? I need a little more. No, we can be confident that he's giving us enough to take care of today. Mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, God is giving you enough You'll be okay. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you have what you need. I'm not perfect, but I keep pressing into his word, and I'm striving to be obedient to that word, understanding that he will give me enough for today. In the ancient world, the use of the white stone had many associations. The white stone could be a a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, evidence of being counted, or a sign of acquittal in the court of law. You know, the the, the judge gives his verdict, and he either gives that person a white stone or a black stone. White stone, they're good to go. They can leave. They have their freedom. The black stone, not going to end well for them. Jesus may have any one of these messages or these meanings in mind, but at the very least, we know that it's an assurance, assurance of blessing for us when we get to heaven last part of verse 17 a new name written on the stone which no one knows except those who receive it what is the meaning of this new secret name that promise to him who overcomes is, is it God's name is it the believer's name it's probably the, new, the, the believer's new name possibly the name itself though probably meant more than the stone what is that name one idea behind this new secret name is that it shows what an intimate relationship that we have with God. Uh, when a married couple is close, like you guys have pet names for each other. You want to share them? No, you don't want to share them. Hey, Pookie Bear. Uh, you know, right? We do that, whatever it is. I don't know. And just for the record, that's not what I call Pam. Um, I just pulled that out of the air. So. Okay, that's embarrassing. Um, but it's a name. Another idea associated with the, the new name is simply assurance that it gives our heavenly destination. Your name is there. God knows you by name. And it's a special name. He created you. And you have purpose. It's as if your reservation in heaven is made. And I want to rewind just for a second as we get ready to close. And we're going to look at that word compromise for a minute. Because that's really what this passage gives us. Something that we can apply today. To compromise is to make concessions or accommodations for someone who doesn't agree with a certain set of standards or rules, right? There are times when compromise is good. Compromise is a basic skill needed in marriage, right? I compromise with Pam about how the dishwasher should be loaded. Or she compromises with me, baby. I don't know. It's something we do in situations where we want to keep peace, where peace is more desirable than getting your own way. Daniel and his three friends essentially worked out a compromise with the Babylonian official concerning their diet in Daniel 1. In certain other matters, compromise is not good. The Bible makes it clear that God does not condone compromising as he commands in the book of Deuteronomy. Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you to do. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Or in Psalm 119, joyful are those who do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his path. God is holy. His ways are right. God is good. His ways are life-giving. Concerning matters that God has clearly addressed, we do not negotiate. We do not bargain. We do not compromise. Compromise comes so easy, doesn't it? It's right there. It's easy. It's just a decisional way, isn't it? King Jehoshaphat foolishly entered a compromising situation with the wicked King Ahab, and it almost cost him his life in 2 Chronicles 18. Jesus rebuked the church of Thyatira for their theological and moral compromise. I can't wait to get to this church. And in Revelation 2.20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food that is sacrificed to idols. So there are certain lines that should not be crossed, and there are times when compromise truly becomes evil. As we go through this world, we'll hear many calls to compromise. The fleeting pleasures of sin, hollow hollow and deceptive philosophies, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all tempt us to compromise in areas that we should not, that that line should be drawn because of our faith in God. Usually the temptation to compromise is heightened by by some type of a desire, a a feeling or a fear, maybe even driven by loneliness uh, or a fear of being rejected or criticized or even filling a void with something other than Christ all those things will fade away, you know. We talk about it at the end of almost every service. We we try to fill that void with anything but Christ. That void will come back. What makes compromise so dangerous is the subtle way it approaches us. Compromise, by definition, doesn't involve us submitting to or yielding to worldly ways or ideals. Rather, it accommodates them. Most of us would recoil at the thought of tossing Jesus aside and embracing an idol or pleasing the flesh but compromise never asks us to do that compromise, say, compromise says that we can have the idol or feed the flesh and we can keep Jesus too that's what compromise, compromise does there's room on the shelf for one more object of worship right? we'll just slide Jesus over a little bit we'll put this idol right there what's the harm we, we still have Jesus I repeat, compromise says that we can have the idol or feed the flesh and keep Jesus too. It's not going to work out very well. It's vital to know when compromise is appropriate and when it's not. In general, we can say that compromise, uh, we can compromise on preferences, but not on principles. Based on that rule of thumb, here are some matters in which compromise might be helpful. The color of the church walls. We'll compromise on that. We'll compromise on the carpet, maybe. You'll compromise on the type of vehicle that maybe your family should drive or where to host your corporate luncheon for the company or when to schedule a trip to the library. There's some areas of compromise, right? That's easy. That's good. But then there should be no compromise over values and standards that come from those values. Some examples of things we should not compromise over, the, the essentials of a Christian faith including the gospel and the faithful preaching of the word, right? We, we talk about with an open-handed and closed-handed doctrine in the past. The lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. We can't compromise that. Your personal convictions. Don't compromise. My convictions are going to be different than your convictions, right? Are my convictions going to land perfectly where you are in life right now? Maybe not. Or vice versa. What is it that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of change that take care of that don't compromise what it is that god has done in and through your life your personal convictions moral issues as defined in scripture don't compromise we have to be careful to live out our biblical beliefs it's pointless to know and speak up for the truth if we do not also act on that truth in a way that we live our lives guys that's hard because we're human beings aren't we and we make mistakes, but we've got to strive to live according to God's Word. Not compromising includes not being hypocritical. When our intention is to actively pursue a deeper relationship with God and obey Him in all things, we are less likely to compromise. It's when we put the flesh in front of that that we begin to compromise. We begin to slip more readily, more ex- readily, we are more readily recognizing of the things that seek to draw us away from God. We will more readily recognize God's voice and trust in him when we focus on him. Don't focus on the things of the world and of the flesh and those things we want to put in front of God. Focus on God. Focus on his word. Resisting compromise is not up to our own strength or efforts. Rather, God has equipped us he is with us. He encouraged us to, to do, as Philippians two twelve and 13 says, My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's word and his presence that nourishes our souls, that gives us the strength and ability to resist temptation to push back on compromise. Other believers encourage us. They walk alongside us. And we do the same for them. I always tell you, don't do life alone. We do it together. We walk through life together. When we're focused on God and living in active relationship with Him and with His people, we come to the understanding and the magnitude of His holiness. We also understand the crushing nature of our sin and how it destroys But then there's the depth of God's grace. God's grace is extended to each one of us. We we see his goodness, and that true life is in him. So we long to follow him in all of our ways. We we long to share the good news of salvation with others. The better we know God, the more we pursue, pursue him, the better we can resist temptation. We can resist the temptation to compromise, to compromise those things that are so important to us so I'm going to close this a little bit different this morning I'm going to ask you all just to close your eyes bow your heads and I just want you to think about a couple things a couple things to pray about maybe you're already a Christian maybe you've surrendered your life to the Lord I would encourage you then to be praying for those that don't maybe there's compromise in someone's life this morning that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus that is, you, you, you don't have that relationship with God. The, the compromise in your life has no moral compass at all. You're just wandering. The second part of that is maybe you are a believer, but you've allowed areas of compromise in your life that must go. They cannot stay any longer. Maybe things or relationships that are in the way of you fulfilling God's purpose in your life, it's got to go. You've thought about it maybe even to the point of dismissing all the blessings that you have in your life. That's how destructive compromise is. We start in the first part. If, if you don't have a relationship with God, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, that If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's the simplicity of the gospel message. You can do that this morning, simply asking God for forgiveness, confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It is that repenting, of that compromise, re- repenting of the, the temptations and the sins that have been dictating your life. as a matter of fact, we're going to pause and just pray about that specifically. If that's you this morning, you don't have a relationship with God, whether you're in this room or you're listening online, you can have that conversation heart to heart with Him. Pray something like this Dear God, please help. I cannot live like this any longer. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Because of that, I repent. Forgive me for my sins. I turn from them. I'm purposely headed in a new direction, starting today. Help me to serve you and to honor you in all that I do. In Jesus' name. Now, keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, because this next part is a hard part for all of us, that that compromise. What things are you allowing in your life that are compromising your relationship with God? If there's something that the Holy Spirit has revealed in your life that's causing you to sin or, or has become more important than God I'm going to ask you this morning to kind of take a step of faith and and just to simply raise your hand. It, it, it's a simple uh, symbol of surrender to the Lord. So, with every head bowed, every eye closed, if if you're struggling with compromise, you're struggling with maybe idolatry, you've put something in front of God. I just want you to slip your hand up. I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to make you do anything else. Keep it up there. It's just the point of surrender. You know, God sees you. He sees you. He knows exactly where you're at. And he loves you unconditionally. Father God, you see these hands. You know the hearts. You know each individual. You created them. You knit them together in the womb. And you have a purpose and a plan for their life. So, Lord, that thing that you've brought to their mind, that that thing that you've brought to the forefront, Father, we surrender that to you. Even I, Lord, surrendering that that compromise in my own life, Lord, we lay that down at your feet. And we ask for forgiveness. We thank you that you love us that much, that you would extend your grace to us, that your son would die for us, Father to shed his blood for our sins. God, we surrender those areas to you and we ask that that you would give us strength and the ability to stay focused on you. Lord, even in this wicked city, in this wicked time that we live in, God, that you would help us not fraternize with the enemy. That when those temptations come, that we would resist the devil knowing that he must flee. God, would you help us to be visibly separate from this world, remembering that we're just passing through, that that heaven is our home, that we're on that narrow path headed towards that narrow gate. Give us wisdom as how to live and how to share our faith with gentleness and compassion. Help us to speak the truth in love, to stand strong in our faith, to put things in their proper order. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ for our daily lives, for that gift of salvation. We thank you for the chance of a restored relationship with you. We thank you for this letter to Pergamum, that that exhortation to make sure that we're not compromising. Lord, would you help us to actively, all of us to actively walk out our faith with fear and trembling, removing anything and everything that hinders us from being obedient to you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the strength to do that, Lord. All of us. Help us to prioritize you, Lord. And may we not just hear these words, but may we heed them. May we apply them to our daily lives. May we not be a church of compromise. Or give us fresh vision. Give us passion to run out of that vision that you give us. May our faith be seen. And may you be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.